0: section 4 of the south american republics volume 1 by thomas Cleland dawson this librivox recording is in the public domain part 1 argentina chapter 2 the spanish colonial system spain as a world power reached her apogee in the year 1580 when juan de garay founded buenos aires in that year portugal was united to the spanish crown and the East Indies and Brazil doubled Spain's colonial dominions. But at the very same moment the first symptom of her decline appeared. For the first time it was proved to the world that she could not hold the seas against her young rivals from Northern Europe. Sir Francis Drake, the earliest harbinger of Britain's dominance on the seas, appeared off the plates on his way to the Pacific spain had trusted that the difficulty of threading the straits of magellan would protect the south seas but drake slipped in in a spell of favourable weather and found few spanish ships which were fit to fight him along all the coast to panama drake's wonderful raid humbled spanish pride where spain was thought strongest and encouraged englishmen to fight with a good heart a few years later the overwhelming invincible armada In 1616 a great Dutchman, Schouten, found the passage into the Pacific around Cape Horn. This discovery revolutionized the navigation routes all over the world. Heretofore the only practicable commercial route to the Pacific had been across the Atlantic to the north shore of the Isthmus. Nombre de Dios was the metropolis and the market where all the goods for South America were landed those intended to be sold on the shore of the caribbean were sent along its coast and those intended for the pacific were carried overland to panamá to be shipped on coasters down to their destination direct communication across the atlantic to buenos aires was forbidden by the spanish government Schouten's epoch-making discovery opened up the way for countless Dutch and English ships to ply a contraband trade with the towns of the Pacific coast, but it did not induce the Spanish government to change its time-honoured policy or vary its trade routes. America was treated as the private property of the sovereign of Castile, and its commerce was to be exploited for his sole benefit. No Spaniard was allowed to freight a ship for the colonies or to buy a pound of goods thence without obtaining a special permission and paying for that privilege. Cadiz was the only port in Spain from which ships were permitted to sail for America, and the whole trade was farmed out to a ring of Cadiz merchants. To protect this monopoly and to prevent the export of gold and silver were the chief purposes of the Spanish colonial policy. Every port on the seaboard of Spanish South America was closed to transoceanic traffic, except Nombre de Dios on the north shore of the Isthmus. The towns on the Pacific and Caribbean coasts might admit coasting vessels properly identified as coming from the Isthmus and loaded with the consignments of the Cadiz monopolists, but the South Atlantic ports were absolutely closed so far as law could close them legally no ships whatever coasters or ocean carriers could enter and unload at buenos aires her imports from spain must first go to the isthmus be disembarked and then transported across the mule paths to the pacific thence the goods had to go in coasters to callao in peru where they were again disembarked transported up the andean passes along the bolivian plateau and finally down into the argentine plain under such conditions in the southern provinces european manufactures could only be sold at fabulous prices on the other hand such a system made exports impossible except those of precious metals and valuable drugs hides hair wool agricultural products would not stand the cost of such long transport by land and sea the spanish authorities seem deliberately to have come to the conclusion that america should be confined to producing gold and silver and they ruthlessly strangled all other industries the plate settlements especially suffered from the ruinous consequences of this system having no mines of precious metals they were considered worthless their interests were ignored and their complaints given no attention the mere existence of buenos aires was a source of anxiety to the monopolists and to the spanish government they feared that the english or dutch might take possession of the mouth of the plate and thence send expeditions to intercept gold and silver shipments along the overland routes more immediate and real was the danger of the establishment of a contraband trade which would deprive the cadiz merchants of their enormous profits on goods sent by the isthmian route the home government enacted laws of incredible severity in trying to enforce this policy in fifteen ninety nine the governor of buenos aires was instructed to forbid all importation and exportation under penalty of death and forfeiture of property The shipping of hides and horsehair to Spain would seem to be harmless enough, but the Spanish government dreaded that gold and silver might be smuggled out in the packages. The government would lose its royal fifth, and the precious metals might be sent to Spain's rival and enemies in Europe. According to the economic ideas then accepted, gold and silver alone constituted wealth, and every ounce mined in America, which did not reach Spain's coffers, was considered irretrievably lost. To prevent clandestine shipments of the precious metals, all commercial intercourse from the coast to the interior was made illegal, and no goods whatever were permitted to pass along the road between Buenos Aires and Cordoba. In the very nature of things, such laws were unenforceable. Even the governors sent out for the special purpose of repressing evasions recommended modifications. But the Cadiz monopolists were stubborn, and their influence with the court was all-powerful. The laws remained on the statute books only, to be constantly disregarded no human power could keep people who lived on the seashore and who had hides wool and horsehair to sell from exchanging them for clothing and tools perforce buenos aires became a community of smugglers english and dutch ships surreptitiously landed their cargoes of manufactures and took their pay in hides or in silver dollars that had escaped the spanish soldiers on the road down from potosí rio and santos in brazil became intermediate warehouses for the commerce of the plate the officials in buenos aires itself connived at evasions and the very governors made great fortunes in partnership with smugglers the guards along the interior routes shut their eyes when the mule trains passed and the goods of flanders and france reached cordoba santiago potosi and even lima by way of buenos aires and were sold at prices with which the cadiz monopolists could not compete silver came surreptitiously from chile and bolivia to pay for these goods the net result was that the trade followed its natural and easiest route although there was a fearful waste of energy in the process the bribe-taking official, the idle soldier at the road station, the smuggler handling his goods in small boats and risking his life at night, and the numerous middlemen absorbed what might have been legitimate profit to the seller or to the consumer. Commerce was half strangled, and with it the industries of the Spanish colonies civil government itself suffered for a community whose daily occupation it was to break one law could not be expected to have much respect for other laws nor for the bribe-taking rulers and mulish legislators nevertheless against these outrageously unreasonable regulations the colonists for centuries made no armed protests they never questioned the abstract right of the crown to forbid them to sell what the labour of their hands had produced they evaded but did not contest centuries of this sort of thing ingrained into south americans they believed that industrial and commercial activity exists only by sufferance of the government the right to sell to buy to exercise a profession or a trade depended on the permission of the government the people saw the executives taxing industry at their pleasure and suppressing its very beginnings until such a procedure came to seem a matter of course Commercial spirit was constantly hampered, and business skill deprived of its rewards. The evil effects of such a policy can be seen at every step of the development of the Spanish-American countries. It is no wonder that office-holding became the most popular of avocations. The farmer, the stock-raiser, and the merchant seemed to be allowed to exist only to pay the Spanish functionary, instead of the governments existing for the benefit of the producing community. To this day service with the government is more esteemed than commercial pursuits. The national ideals are only slowly becoming industrial. The king of Castile was absolute sovereign and sole proprietor of America. The continent was an appanage of his crown. It did not form an integral part of Spain. America and Spain were connected solely through their common allegiance to him. The king governed America directly assisted not by his regular ministers but by a body of personal advisers called the council of the indies his representatives in south america were the viceroys of mexico and peru the latter's jurisdiction extended over all south america certain great territorial divisions had been made captaincies-general and though theoretically subordinate to the viceroy they were in effect independent of him in the great capital cities sat bodies of high judicial and executive officials known as audiencias amongst their functions was that of exercising the powers of the viceroy during his absence Charkas, the capital of the mining region of Bolivia, was the seat of an Audiencia, and since this city had no resident viceroy or captain-general, its Audiencia was the real supreme authority over the Argentine and all the territory east of the Cordillera, from Lake Titicaca to the Straits. Viceroyalties and captaincies-general were divided into provinces, each of which was ruled by a royal governor. When the Spaniards permanently occupied a new region, their first step was to found a city and organize a municipal government. Like the Romans, they knew no other unit of political structure. The governing body was called the Cabildo and consisted of from six to twelve members who held office for life. It conducted the ordinary judicial and civil administration through officers selected by itself and from its own members though the governor was ex officio president of this body and although its members had bought their places they were not mere figureheads to register his will limited though their functions were they represented the time-honoured governmental form into which spaniards had always crystallized and the creoles could not be prevented from obtaining a preponderant influence in them Throughout colonial times, they represented local and Creole interests, and operated continually as a check to the aggression of the military governors. The territorial jurisdiction of a municipality was usually ill-defined. Indeed, as a rule, in the days of settlement, it extended in every direction until the claim of another city was encountered, and the terms city and province were therefore usually synonymous as population grew denser new cities were founded which as municipalities were independent of the capital town but they were not necessarily separated from the original province the cabildo of the capital of a province bore a peculiar relation to the royal governor and often tried to exercise a control over the affairs of the whole province deeming themselves his associates and the sharers of the functions he exercised outside of its own boundaries as well as within them this assumption was favoured by the fact that no general body representing all the offices of a province existed nor any constitutional machinery by which they could act in common spanish americans have known only two forms of government which have everywhere and always coexisted, though they seem inconsistent first there is an executive the limits of his power ill-defined and often imposing his will by force in essence arbitrary and personal and feared rather than respected by the people secondly the cabildos and the modern deliberative bodies never really elective these have nevertheless performed many of the functions of bodies truly representative they have checked the arbitrary executives and furnished a basis for government by discussion for centuries the communities looked to them for the conduct of ordinary local governmental affairs and they survived all the storms of colonial and revolutionary times On the other hand, their importance in the Spanish governmental scheme has been a most potent influence in preventing the growth of local representative government by elective assemblies and officials. Consequently, in national matters, freely elected and truly representative assemblies have been hard to obtain. Legislation has been controlled by the functionaries, and there has been no general and continuous participation in governmental affairs, by the body of the people. Government, by discussion, and by the common sense of the majority, is difficult to establish among a people accustomed for centuries to seeing matters in the hands of officials whom they had no practical means of holding to responsibility. The people have rarely felt that the executive was their own officer. He was imposed on them from above, he was not amenable to them, and so far as they were concerned he ruled at his own risk the creoles were intensely democratic in feeling and hard to control and when they could not tolerate an executive they turned him out by force because no effective machinery existed by which they could turn him out peaceably though the colonial governor was required to give an account of his administration at the close of his term as a matter of fact he was an irresponsible and despotic satrap who taxed judged and imprisoned people at his pleasure restrained only by his traditional respect for the cabildos, and by the fear of exciting revolt. He commanded the armed forces, and his power was, in fact, rather military than civil in origin, method, and application. The cabildos selected the ordinary judicial officers of first resort from among their own members' list, but their authority was not very effective outside the town itself the vast plains between the settlements were largely governed patriarchally by the ranch owners and the popular and capable gauchos who grew into leaders a taste for town life soon became characteristic of the spanish-americans and wherever able they crowded into the towns in preference to staying on their ranches wealth intelligence and political activity therefore came to be concentrated in a few foci. The government of granting immense tracts of land and dividing up the Indians as slaves among the proprietors would apparently have a tendency to produce a landed aristocracy. But the money profits in colonial days were small, and the great landowners lived in the same style as his poorer neighbor. Titles of nobility did not exist, and the constitution of society was decidedly democratic. From the very earliest times no love was lost between the Creoles and the newly arrived Spaniards. The governor was almost invariably a Spaniard, while the Cabildo and its officers were usually Creoles. End of section four